Welcome to another podcast episode of the Roundtable Community, where connecting inspiring minds is our core mission. Each week we have a topic, a featured expert, our panel, and then an open stage uh, of questions from our live audience via the Clubhouse app and community. Your hosts today are uh, Sandra Spencer, Simon Potter, and myself, Jamar Reyes. And in the background, we also have Melissa Mattingly and Kent and Keith. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Ken Lang, uh, who, who will be helping out with questions down the track. So uh, in the last 20 minutes, we'll be opening up the floor uh, for discussions with our live audience. So Sandra and Simon, great. Uh, I look forward to my Tuesdays. Great to have you guys here. How, how are you, Sandra? You've, uh, you've, have you had a good week? So, Yeah, I have. So in terms of sport, I wanted to ask you guys, um, what's your favorite sport and why? Ooh. Very, very good question, Sandra, and uh, definitely have to show some bias here being from Melbourne with uh, with the aerial ping pong, and that's called AFL, so that would be my, rules football, my choice. International people. Exactly right, exactly right. What about you, Joe? You know what? I, I used to have dreams of being a professional tennis player, but I just didn't have the skills. Um, so <laughs> I, I had a lot, I had a lot of commitment in the backyard, hitting the ball against the wall. Um, and then, uh, golf was another love, but again, golf is a massive, uh, thing of time, but I've, I've gone down to table tennis. I can still beat my 15 year old son. So I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. The the tables will turn soon. Yeah. And, and Sandra, what about yourself? Are you yeah. Like you'd have to be, um, snow skiing, but the entry level to that was being an Australian as uh, doing water skiing. But yeah, like I love anything to do with the water, but snow um, is when you're overseas and there isn't a lot of like good weather and there wasn't a lot of um, <laughs> water that you could swim in, then snow skiing, yeah, snow skiing mm. has to be like my favourite. Yeah, and, so, and, yeah, and today's topic is uh, the, the inspiring the performance with a sports mindset. And uh, do you want to give us the insight, Sandra, on our special guest? That's today? it. So we're looking at inspiring performance with a sport mindset. So what's up with data, passion, the power of no, and yes to performance. We have Head of Sports Science at Apollo V2, Michael Macri. Now, I wanted to um, introduce uh, Michael by saying that uh, at the age of 21, after an internship with the Rabbitohs, he had um, was given a position with uh, with the team, and he's now taken his uh, talents to share them uh, overseas, and he's now currently in Texas. So, a warm welcome, Michael. Hey guys, how you doing? Hey Michael. Good. So you're a sporting buff from a sporting nation, Australia. So, what is it uh, that you're sharing uh, over there in Texas? Oh, well, I'm just bringing that bit of Aussie flavor. It's, um, you know, there's a bit of a stigma about Texas, even from Americans. So I was a bit worried when I moved over here. But to be honest, like Texans are very chill. They're laid back. They're a lot like Aussies in a lot of way. Very um, welcoming. So just really enjoying my time, um, you know, yeah, and just living the dream, I suppose, in terms of like getting out there and doing what I love and meeting some great people and being involved with some really genuine people, which I, I value quite highly. So what is uh, what do you what sort of work do you do with Apollo V2 and what sort of uh, teams and athletes are you working with at the moment? So as a head of sports science, I help to manage teams with their data, help them collate it, centralise it in our system. So essentially 
the software itself is a platform that can bring all bits of data together from strength and conditioning silos, medical, um, sports science, which like load management, which has been a quite a big topic over here of late, and even game statistics. So typically teams have them in all different areas, whether it be um, different departments, spreadsheets, different systems, and a lot of the time they're in isolation. They're not looked at as a whole. So the strength and conditioning department might not really know what the medical department is doing and vice versa, and that can be quite an issue. So we bring it all together and then enable teams to cross-reference that data so they can get much more of a bigger picture as to what's happening with the information that they're collecting so they can make more informed decisions. Yeah, okay, yeah, we'll talk about our data in a bit more detail later, but in terms of um, sport, you started, you know, you fell in love with sports. So can you tell us what sports where you had some magic moments and then how you progressed to helping um, other people and teams have those milestones? Yeah, so as, uh, yeah, like you said, coming from Australia, I sort of took part in every bit of sport that I could, but my main loves were uh, swimming and soccer, like the beautiful game. But uh, swimming was my, my main sport that I excelled at, um, competed at a state age, national age level, but never really set the world on fire. It was just a, a skill that my parents wanted me to have. Um, you know, being able to swim is quite important, whether it be in a pool or out on the beach. Um, and then just taking that win. My sisters competed as well, and I sort of took that. Being the youngest in the family, wanted to be better than my, si my siblings. So, um, you know, just carried that on, really enjoyed it. And, um, again, great experiences. My head coach, Graham Brewer, he, was, um, he swam for Australia at the Moscow Olympics and a couple of Commonwealth Games. So him as a coach... Uh, a mentor, father figure was phenomenal. He ended up being my boss later on in, um, when I started off my career as a coach. And so when we look at uh, the work that you've done, uh, if we just go back to when you're 21 uh, from your internship with the Rabbitohs, uh, what sort of milestones have you hit that have really um, embraced you and your career to move you forward? Well, I think actually getting the internship first at the Rabbitohs was a, a massive milestone because as a when I finished school in year 12, um, I was still 17 for a few months before I turned 18, but, and I was in my first year of my undergrad at Australian Catholic University in Strathfield, so I was a baby. And we did certain things within that course that enabled us to get out into the real world, like doing accreditations or coaching practical. And I spoke to the people and I was like, hey, how do I get a job in sport? Because everyone wants to have a job in sport, especially if you were a former athlete. And they're like, well, it's all about experience and it's who you know. So if you finish your degree in three years, you'll be 20 years old. Hey, great, you've got a degree, but you'll have zero experience. So it's going to be very hard to find a job. So I took back to heart. So as an 18-year-old, I ended up doing my um, undergrad part-time and I ended up doing it over a, a six, seven-year stretch. And I just sort of interned at all sorts of areas that I could all over Sydney. So the Rabbitohs internship was a culmination of three, three and a half years of volunteer unpaid internships, sort of like a, I wouldn't say it's an unwritten rule, but it's sort of like a pay your dues type thing in the strength and conditioning world. So to get that opportunity at the Rabbitohs was a mindset of, I did 
under Nathan Parnham, a strength coach, an internship with the North Sydney Bears, which was the feeder club. And I'm like, oh, I'm happy to do this. You know, they offered me a couple of thousand dollars. I didn't think I had the ability to go to that next level. And then one day I just sort of haven't like, you know, screw it. Let's give it a go. Reached out to the Rabbitohs, got the internship. And then as a result of my, my experiences of through the last few years, my personality, they ended up, they, they must have looked at me and gone, hey, there's something good about this kid. So they ended up giving me the job at the end of that uh, 2012 season. So that was a milestone in itself. And then just being very lucky to be a part of the NRL Premiership in 2014, the World Club Challenge title in 2015, uh, moving overseas and getting my first job in the States at Baylor University, uh, and then just meeting a whole bunch of really cool people. So I couldn't really put it to one milestone. It's sort of a lot that sort of was like a domino effect along the way that brought me to bigger and better things. Yeah, you have a reputation of not being uh, a yes man. So why is it important to be able to say no? And how do you navigate that? I think a lot of it comes down to, number one, like staying true to yourself and your beliefs. A lot of people, like sport can be a very much a copycat industry and people are, and, and for good reason, um, scared to stand up on occasion. And the reason why I say with good reason is because it's their livelihood, right? So if you have a, a job and you're getting paid X amount of money, and you disagree with a head coach who might take it the wrong way, you know, you may be, get out of favor, you may end up losing your job. Now that's a very extreme case, but a lot of people, you know, it's hard to get a job in this industry. So to keep the money and to keep providing for your family, yourself, whatever it may be, um, that's at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. But unfortunately, while you're looking after yourself financially, being a yes man and just doing, dotting your I's and crossing your T's doesn't always get you places with, you know, your coaches, your athletes trying to push the envelope, push the needle forward and have that success. Coaches, you know, they typically bring their own people on board for the sake of, they know that those people have their back. They know they don't have to argue with those people. Those people aren't going to backstab them and get out of, you know, go really crazy in terms of what they want to do. But at the same time, if you, if you institutionalize yourself and hear the same things over and over again, and you're not getting the results, you have to ask yourself, well, is always agreeing with a head coach always the right thing? So I don't think coaches enjoy people challenging them and saying always no. So don't just be saying no for the sake of saying no. If you don't believe in what is happening in a coaching um, staff meeting or what goes on on the field, at least highlighting your opinions is a good start to healthy conversation. And then once you have healthy conversation, things can go in, in all sorts of areas that may benefit the team. So it's about just having an opinion and having constructive opinions rather than just being a pain in the ass and saying no for the sake of saying no. <laughs> do you think that the biggest challenge in what you do to get the results is communication and people and how do you, you're not going to win everything, but what, what rules do you go by or how do you navigate that? It's 100% people. Like there's, we're in this data age now where there's lots of technology and it just happens because Australia was very, very good with the sports science, like the load management, the injury prevention, but we had to be because the talent pool in the country is quite small. 
So let's compare Australia to America, right? So Australia's got around 25 million people, give or take. And America has 330 million people, give or take. So instantly you can say, okay, a larger depth, larger talent pool. We don't have the numbers. So if we have a squad of 30, 35 per rugby league team in the NRL, then you're capped at 35 players. So if you end up having a horrendous injury toll, well, unfortunately, that's, that's too bad. You have to work with what you've got. It's the same here in America, but there's a larger production line. There's much more of a culture of next man up mentality. You will have potentially five, six, seven, eight of the same position, depending on where you're working in the professional realm or in the collegiate realm. Like at Baylor, we had over 100 kids on the roster, right? But you only need anywhere between you know, 50, 60 players for a game every week, right? So you've got anywhere between 30, 40, 50 players that are essentially not doing anything during the game. However, obviously the depth is a different story. We can go down those rabbit holes. But being able to understand that what you're collecting doesn't make a difference if people don't listen to you and at least make that actionable. So yes, having a personality, being able to speak the language of the coaches that you're working with, or even the different departments, like strength coaches, they tend to have a different terminology to medical people. Um, they have different terminologies to data people, to sports coaches. So being able to be, know your audience and explain maybe a complex issue to people that have many different IQs and EQs is a very important skill to be heard. And in, um, term in, in terms of like performance and a crossover between a sport mindset and other industries and one's life, what do you take from your background in sports to be able to give to other industries and other people? I think you just got to be yourself. Um, that can be good and bad because if you're not someone's cup of tea, well, then it doesn't fly very well. But I think, you know, like I said, having a personality that people can understand that, yes, I'm going to gravitate towards this person because this person's not going to bullshit me on anything. They're going to be honest up front no matter how painful or truthful that may be. Uh, I always go out and say I tell people what they need to hear rather than what they want to hear. And it's about finding the right time and place for it, though, because if you tell someone what they need to hear at the wrong time, that can be quite dangerous and quite... You know, it, it, it can blow up in, there, in your face. But I think, yeah, just um, being honest and genuine is what I found. Like the, the people that I look up to uh, in the industry, whether it be, you know, sports practitioners, my boss, Dave Hancock, um, mentors, like I said before, with Nathan Parnham, he was one of my f uh, first strength coaches that really took a chance on me. People at the highest level tend to be the most genuine. It's when you are amongst you know, the, the realms of starting up in the early stages, they tend to be a bit more cutthroat because people think you're trying to steal their job, right? But I take the lead of, I'm in this industry, I want to be the best in the world because it's quite an industry where you sacrifice a lot. So I look to those people that have made it and try to, you know, you, know, you want to be the best, you've got to learn from the best, right? Yeah, 
talk us through what a typical day could be like what, when you're right in the middle of working with uh, high-performing teams because I remember when you told me the hours you're doing are insane. It's like being in the film industry. But talk us through what, what it might take to get um, a team or an athlete ready. Oh, yeah, it can definitely vary. And I think the hours typically stay the same uh, no matter where in the world you are. But I'll, I'll take you through sort of my day at the Rabbitohs because that was, I was sort of like a jack of all trades there. Yeah, my title was sports science, sports science, uh, sports scientist, sorry, and head trainer, but that was just a title. Like sports tend to have, oh, fancy titles at times that really mean nothing about what you do. Um, so I was the gear steward, I was the sports scientist, I helped with um, off legs rehabilitation, conditioning, whatever you want to call it. I helped manage the facility. I was everything, right? So if it was a pre-season day, I would probably be up around 4.30, be in the facility around anywhere between 5 and 5.30, depending on whether or not we had an early start with the young boys. At the Rabbitohs, we had two groups. We had the young boys that started really early in the morning. And after they finished in, in the gym, they would go out into the workforce and we had um, sort of like labor jobs for them, whether it be on the construction site, you know, digging holes, all sorts of landscape, whatever it may be, right? Because Michael Maguire, the head coach, was like, well, we want these kids to appreciate the fact that they are professional rugby league players and not just take it for granted, right? So those kids would always start really early in the morning. After they finished, when they went to work, the rest of the group would, would rock up maybe around seven o'clock. So there's a lot of preparation, you know, get their supplements ready, make sure that the water and the Powerade and, and the gyms are ready to go. There's multiple different groups. So they probably have three groups that all span between a, an hour and a half, two hours long with 30 minutes of uh, preventive exercises, maybe 90 minutes in the gym. They'd have lunch and you you have to prepare for the afternoon session, so that would be um, setting up the equipment for outside, getting the GPS units tracking, making sure that the, uh, the wellness subjective questionnaires, you know, how are you feeling today, how sore you are today, that they did prior to the, the gym sessions, make sure you collate all that information. When the boys go out to training, particularly in pre-season, it might be a two, two and a half hour session, so the ability to track the data live is what a lot of teams do these days, so you can make decisions on the fly rather than waiting to the end of the session and realizing, oh shit, we should have done something there. We should have, you know, we should have cut the session short, gone longer. We didn't train hard enough, whatever have you. When the session finishes, you're getting all the equipment off the field. You're collecting all the GPS units off the player, which can sometimes be a bit of a, a difficult thing because you know the players they tend to go their own ways. Then you're downloading the units, you're collecting the information, you're putting them into your reports, and you then you're setting up for the next day, and then it just is one big domino effect from day to day to day to day. Wow. And then you might have me you might have staff meetings in there. <laughs> I'm you exhausted. Know, you know, I'm if, totally if, exhausted. Yeah, it's just it's it's crazy, and that's just you know that can that's an extreme example because it's pre-season. It can be a bit more chill in season, but you know to give you the most in depth about how it goes in pre-season, it was funny. I'll tell you a quick, quick funny story. So. It's funny how people don't really understand how much work goes into it. We're a, a lovely next door neighbor, right? And um, they're family friends. I'm leaving at 
five o'clock in the morning, right? And I get home. This is probably my first year, first few weeks on the job. And I'm getting home around eight, eight thirty. And she's coming over to see her mum and dad. And she looks at me. She's like, are you working now? Because I, I drove this big truck which had rabbitos decals all over it so it was pretty hard to not know what I was doing for work um I was like a walking adv advertisement and she was like this was like in uh early November or late November sorry she looked at me she goes are you guys training now I'm like yeah yeah we've been training for at least a few weeks she goes oh I thought you guys don't start till March and you just you know have a couple of weeks and then you start playing games I'm like no no you know pre-season is like a three-month ordeal so not a lot of people understand the back room, what goes into it, especially, you know, when you're traveling and you might get home at three, four o'clock in the morning. So there's a lot of stuff that it's, it's on the surface, a sexy industry, but it's, you know, deep down, it's, it's just like every other job. So, um, M Michael, I mean, this is, um, I, I suppose I'm the least sporty of the three of uh, your co-hosts here, um, more on the business side of things. But, you know, in working with a guy like Simon on this uh, roundtable community, it's, it's been interesting because uh, we've you know, only started working on this, but he has a really great way of coaching the other two of us along. We have this back channel where he'll be writing you know, good questions, stuff like that. And I, and I had a chat to him the other day and I said, hey, this is the real, the sports mindset in working in a kind of like, a, a, I suppose, a, a business environment or a media environment. So m my question is, um, you know, how, how do you see that, um, a couple of things like, how do you manage things like burnout? Because I know that people uh, do burnout, whether it's in sport. And the other thing is, the other question I want to quickly throw in, and you can, if you can answer both of them, is um, and from burnout, from running at too, too much of 100%, because I know sports can be intense. Is there timing? Is there training? How do you manage that? Well, there's a number of ways you can manage it. So, but it depends on the time of the year. So in America, there is designated periods within American football, whether it be collegiate or the NFL, where the strength coaches are the predominant voice. They take charge. And the sports coaches, like the head coach, the positional coaches, they aren't allowed to take part in practice and training, right? So when that part of the season in the, or the off-season, pre-season occurs, then the head strength coach is pretty much able to manipulate the, the load, the, the, the length of the workout, how much they're doing. And it's quite easy because when you're commanding that and you're planning that, that's under your control. So that's easy to monitor what's in your control. The difficult part to manage the burnout is when you're in season or in parts where the head coach is planning the sessions, right? So that comes back to the relationships that you have with your coaches. A lot of sports scientists think that they can impact, oh, okay, coach, you walk into a staff meeting. Um, that session was too long today. You shouldn't do that. You can't do that. You can't tell a coach what they can and can't do. It's more about making suggestions. Coaches will have their session plan, and for the most part, they will follow that session plan. They don't trust the people in their staff, which is ironic because it does happen, um, and, and coaches don't listen, and, it, and it's fine because coach is king, right? Coach lives and dies by the sword. They're the most important figure in a team. But if they want to do practice, 
you know, unless you're able to educate them as to why they should you maybe do a little bit less here or ramp up the players a bit more. If that practice is going to be a very tough practice for two hours on a Monday and then they want to go again on a Tuesday or on a Wednesday and you haven't got the ability to educate them as, as to why they shouldn't do three tough sessions in a row, well, then you're not doing the right thing as a practitioner, in my opinion. Some people would think that's a bit harsh, but, you know, it's trying to limit the damage. Coaches are always going to go 100%, particularly when they lose, because what happens is when you're losing games, what's the most easiest thing to do? Oh, we've got to train harder to win, right? So it's, I hope that answered your question because it's sort of a two-pronged, Thing. So when you're in your control, there's periodization sort of techniques, but when it's out of control, it's, it's all about people and trying to educate in order to make, help them make decisions. Because coaches aren't meant to know what performance practitioners know, right? So we have to help them. Mm, no, that, that, was a, that was a good, good, uh, a good answer. And I think, you know, for me, trying to also translate that to the business is also relevant. You know, having that coaching support from people in the business world, I think, is something that... that a lot of business people lack so um so there's some some really good insights there just quickly uh this is the roundtable community podcast and this in this episode we're talking with michael macri who's head of sports science at apollo v2 um i'm on stage with michael and sandra and simon simon did you have any uh, a quick question or a question for um for michael yeah, I do, Michael. Obviously, um, you know, in professional sports, when it's a team dynamic, you know, you've got all different types of characters and, you know, behaviours of people, you know, and you've got work ethics. A lot of people tend to, you know, really have that drive to want to succeed. You know, what's it like working in a professional sports environment with all different behaviours of, you know, of, of people like, you know, particularly with, you know, with the willpower and the want for them to get better. What's it like dealing with all different kinds of personality? <laughs> it is, it can be tricky because again, sport, especially in the backroom staff, is not for everyone. Um, you have to have the right personality, not just for sport in general, but for specific sports, right? So rugby league is... A working class sport it is very different to say america well i wouldn't say very different to american football but yes it is different to american football it's different to baseball it's even different to rugby union right um we like to well at least sort of how i looked at it was like you know and this is this is probably not the right thing to say but i'm just going to say it anyway so rugby league's more like working class and rugby union is more like the i wouldn't say upper class but like you know more private school based and you have different types of athletes that are, they're educated differently. They're brought up differently, right? And that's not, I'm not trying to stereotype it, but across the board, it's sort of like that. So if you are, let's say, a golfer, and you, and golf is a very proper gentleman sport, right? And you find yourself in a rugby league circle with those types of personalities, and you try to, essentially coach these individuals like they're golf athletes, well, then you're going to fail because rugby league athletes aren't golf athletes, right? So again, it's, it's knowing your audience and there's not going to be, you're not going to get along with everyone. Like I didn't get along with everyone or all the players at the Rabbitohs. No matter where you go, there's going to be some players that just aren't your cup of tea, right? But for me, in my position, 
I got to know the players quite well because a lot of my work involved either being in the locker room or the sheds a lot. Um, I had to be around the players quite a bit and I was a go-to person for the player. Anything that they needed, whether it be you know, the GPS units, um, supplements, uh, new kit because they had you know, lost or whatever their old kit or they damaged their old kit or they just needed something. You know, my name, you know, they would call me by my last name. They go, Macri, hear my name, just shouted like almost every five minutes in the facility because I was someone that offered a service to them that they needed the most. So when I gave it to them, I was quite an important character for them because they needed something out of me. But the cool thing behind that was they also protected me when other staff members or other players gave me shit, right? They would, if I was a little bit down or I was a bit stressed or, again, you have to understand, you know, I'm still, I'm still a baby, com you know, comparatively to every all the other staff. You know, I'm 21, 22. Even when I left at the age of 26, it's very, very young. So the boys sort of treated me like I was their younger brother. And I didn't have to really deal with too much of their characters outside of that because I wasn't in a position that was going to make or break their career. When you're a head coach and you're telling a player, you know, you, you know, you're not going to play this week or, sorry, we want to move you on, players tend to tread differently to those types of staff. I was a staff member that, you know, I wasn't going to impact their career about, oh, you know, sorry, I wasn't going to walk up to Sam Burgess and go, oh, sorry, mate, you know, you're not going to play this week, so I'm not going to give you a protein shake or I'm going to take a GPS away from you. No, I'm not that sort of person. I was the person that was like, you know, here, what do you need? How can I help you? You know, how do I get you better? And that sort of helps my job, right? So the higher you are up in that position, I guess the relationships tend to change a little bit. And then you have to then navigate the personalities and understand that some people, you might need to talk a bit of, you know, shit to and rile them up and just joke about. Some people, you might need to put your arm around and give them a bit of cuddle. You know, I'm not old enough yet, but you know, when I get older, I could be maybe that father figure to a young athlete or a friend to the athlete when they need it. You know, give them some tough love or whatever. And that's sort of, and again, it's just, it's knowing your athletes, right? It's knowing your athletes as human beings because there is a human element. We're working with humans, not robots. And the more you know your athletes, the more you're able to help them, whether it be doing something from a GPS or a strength coach standpoint or just giving someone advice and talking about, hey, how's your family going? How you feeling, you know? You know what, what do you like doing outside of sport? And just caring about, and talking to them about things outside of that environment that actually makes them feel, you know what, this person cares about me. Exactly right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very important to get the respect of the players and to get their respect early on, you know. Can you walk us through the importance of building relationships? You know, how important is that not only to be an expert in your field, but to be able to adapt to all different kinds of personalities and build those relationships, whether it be from the coach down to, you know, maybe the coach. I tell you what, it's a, it's a hard thing to give advice on because my personality and my boss's personality, you know, my boss Dave, like he's worked 20 years in the Premier League, you know, worked at Leeds United with Harry Kuehl and Mark Viduku, was at Chelsea with, you know, Frank Lampard, John Terry, you know, just massive personalities. 
Then he went to the New York Knicks and with Carmelo Anthony, and he's uh, worked with Kevin Durant, and like these are massive, massive personalities, more than I've ever worked with in my career, right? Um, so it's it's all about you know, how are you as an individual interacting with these people, and how are you perceiving these people? You know, for me. Yeah, I can, I can admit that when I was first at the Ravitos, I was a little bit starstruck. But then a few weeks into the job, they started to give me the shits, and I was like, these are just ordinary people that I can, you know, boss, not, not, not that I was bossing anybody around, but I, I treat them just like anybody else, right? And that sort of ability sort of, uh, I think, gain respect over time. You know, when these are people that, it's funny, the people that are more famous more wealthy, they expect more free stuff or, you know, who do you, you know, who do you think I am? You know, do you know who I am? Do you got to do this for me, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm like, no, put them in their place a little bit. And it sort of humbles them. And they go, wow, this guy's got some balls. So, you know, I might, I actually respect this guy as, a, as opposed to just being someone that, you know, gets walked all over. But essentially our job as practitioners is we have an idea, whether it be a program a way of tracking, whatever. And our idea needs to be carried out by individuals, whether it be athletes or coaches. And you can have the best program in the world, and if no one listens to you, then your impact is very limited. So you just can't come into an organization and go, hey, my name's Michael Macri, I'm the boss, let's go, guys. Because they're like, who the fuck is this guy? Why is, you know, he's got no skin in the game, or he's been here for five minutes, and I've been in this club for 15 years as a junior. You know what I mean? So. It's about building that respect, get, you know, at least sitting down with these players and going, okay, you know, how's it going? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so-and-so. This is where I'm from. You know, where are you from? How have things been done around here during your time? How can we get better? You know, almost asking the players, you know, what do I need to do in order to be heard? And when you're vulnerable like that and you're asking players, hey, advice, rather than just... because. Coaches are renowned for yelling and screaming at players when they do things wrong, right? So if you flip it on its head and sort of have that balance of, and it, you've, got, you've got to be careful not to go too far on the spectrum of being their friend or too far the other way of being this authoritarian. you sort of got to sit in the middle, you know, have the respect enough to go, hey, they will converse with you in a way that they will tell you personal stuff, but not to the point where they're not going to listen to you when you know, you need to go. So you've got to, you've got to sit in that middle and you've got to switch it on and off and go, okay, now's not the time to fuck around. Let's get to work. Or, you know, we can switch off and have a bit of fun. And it's an important skill and not a lot of people have it, but definitely an important skill to have. I know, uh, Melissa, you have a question for, um, for uh, Michael. Thank you. Hi, Michael. Uh, hello sports person here <laughs> hi also hi unicorn um, how you doing <laughs> how did wait that's what i called what how did you know? okay oh you're too funny i like you Michael. um okay uh so a little bit of a silly question up first but what part of texas are you in because my brother lives in texas so out of the question oh i um so i lived in the bay area so i lived in a area called uh mountain view in like the san francisco area and then i moved to waco texas which is where baylor university uh, is yeah. and now now i'm down i know because waco was a, a massive shock to the system it was a great time <laughs> but now i'm in a much more of an area that that suits my where i'm from i'm, I'm in 
Austin, Austin, Texas. I'm actually in a in an area called Round Rock, but it's not cool to call Round Rock tech, uh, Austin. But I don't care about those people, so I'm in Austin. Understood. I've got a cousin <laughs> in Austin. My brother lives in El Paso. Um, oh, there you go. Oh, El Paso. Yeah. That's rough. Go Chihuahuas. Whoa, whoa. I mean, ow, 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 ow. I'm just <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I have been writing down so much stuff because, per usual, these three up top here have collaborated and um, convinced somebody to come on. I mean not even convinced but at the same time it's like the things that these three create like i'm just always so on fire um so thank you so much for being here one and to sandra simon jomar thank you so much for creating this um uh to backtrack i wrote down a lot of notes here uh number one in terms of the afl uh which i've just now learned about uh, at the beginning of this um i cannot wait to kick Simon, Jomar, and also his son's bootay one day. I just wanted to say. I'm oh. great at that. Uh-huh. Uh, secondly. You good girl. Yeah, yeah. Also, Michael. Um, hey, Moneyball. <laughs> Moneyball Michael. What's up, dude? Um, you're smack dab in the CRM. Um, marketing. I'm a marketer by trade, right? Or, well, was by trade. I'm in hibernation. Um, because of the current uh, business environment. But I do love the sports environment, but like any business, sports is also a running business. And how do we treat humans within that? Um, because I do see, especially if you're talking about um, the movements within America, within BLM and within all these things, right? You see um, how humans can become commoditized, right? And I just want to thank you so much for kind of mentioning the individual human characteristics of each person and responding to that. That was so brilliant, Michael. So I just wanted to appreciate that and spend a moment in that so much. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you. Um, also, um, as a medical person, um, so I always get drawn back to this, the score keeps itself. Um, and so as a medical person within that, how, let's say you are the owner of your own sports team. How would you go about defining the culture of that team? I think Simon's question touched upon that, but I'd really like to hear in even your most grandiose ideas, how would you define the culture of that particular team? Well, that's a it's a very good question, and it's 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 difficult because sometimes at the highest levels, like if we're talking, you know, NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, a lot of the times, the cult there's two types of cultures. There's the culture from the head coach, and there's the culture from the GM, right? So it depends on what side of the coin that you're on, and if you're in a a lot of the sexy positions these days are like, you know vice president of performance or executive whatever of performance they tend to sit more on the the gm side but but let's say i had the power to do whatever i want type deal yeah you run Um, the team yeah yeah so the idea would be you know people first is such a cliche thing to say but that's definitely number one and then also taking of what they were doing before right the problem with people that come into new organizations is they look at what they did before and they 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 pretend they a lot of the times they tend to scrap everything from the previous regime and you know that only works if there's a new head coach involved right so the idea is you know what are they doing 
previously and how can you improve on what they're doing? Like, what is the reason why, you know, they brought you in in the first place, right? Are you trying to, you know, prevent injuries? Are you trying to improve the team so they make, they're winning more games? I think it's being able to hire people in whatever role, whether it be strength coach, sports scientist, whatever. Like, for me, it's like, hire the best people, the smartest people in those positions and they make you look good, right? And that was Michael Macri, who's the head of sports science at Apollo V2 in the US. Uh, this has been an episode of the Roundtable Community Podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on LinkedIn. So search Roundtable Community on LinkedIn. You can visit us on www.roundtable.community uh, and podcasts are available on Spotify, iTunes and Google Play. So thanks for listening and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode.